everyone. I'm Jason, and I am thrilled to be joined today by my good friend, Keith Giles. He is a prolific author, blogger, and podcaster. He's one of four co-hosts of the insanely popular Heretic Happy Hour podcast. He has written a ton of books, I think like 10,000 or so, including Jesus Untangled, Jesus Unbound, Jesus Unveiled, Jesus Unexpected, and literally wrote the book on the subject we're going to be talking about today, Jesus Undefeated. I'm excited to welcome back for a Messy Conversations bonus episode, my good friend Keith Giles. Wow, man, Jason, you make me sound like I wish I was that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you are uh, absolutely you. that guy, and I am not the only one who feels that way. Well, thank you. Love you, man, and I, I love you a lot. I was love just thinking you. before we this conversation, like, what, what a blessing you are to me, man. I'm just so glad I know you and we've gotten to be able to do things together. Uh, it's been really a blessing for me. So thanks. Well, that means a lot to me. I, I'm looking forward to better days when we can do some of these things together in person. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, some event kind of things. I think that's yeah. going to be a lot of fun. All right. So today we want to talk about some common objections to misconceptions about yep. maybe myths surrounding universalism. But before we dive into that, correct me on the terminology. Do you, do you use the term Christian universalist? Is that right? Um, well, I mean, if, if I'm trying to be precise, I probably would use the term patristic universalism. And what that means is the church, early church fathers. And the reason why is one, I think it's a little more accurate. And two, um, I, I think what it should do is what I'm trying to do is um, frame the belief as as an early foundational christian belief because it's because again most people assume it's some new age some modern progressive uh christian view that's heretical and challenges the traditional view of eternal torment but the reality is uh for like the first 400 years of church history the majority of christians were universalists and that's just historical it's not my opinion that's historical fact so uh, I usually use that term patristic universalism. You know, it's not it's not incorrect to say Christian universalism, but my 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 fear on that term is I think when you say Christian universalist, what people hear is something like Unitarian universalist, or they they put you in some kind of again some kind of category outside of Christianity. You're like one of those weird sort of fringe group, sort of probably not really Christian. <laughs> Um, right. beliefs so yeah i i yeah i mean that's why I, I tend to usually try to say patristic universalism to explain what i believe but it, it's so not you're incorrect. not saying all paths lead to god <clears throat> well I don't, I don't think i would i mean hmm. I, well it's i've never said that uh, i think i don't think i've ever said that all paths lead to god however um i do think that it's still true that no one comes to the father except through Christ. Um, I just think that some people um, may not call it Christ. <laughs> they may not recognize it by that term, by the terminology, but I still think it is true that all who come and who will eventually, I believe everyone uh, who comes to know the father and be become one with the father, um, you know, to be what we call saved. Uh, after they die, it will, there will be no one who is there outside of Christ. So, um, so, you know, uh, I'm trying to think there's a quote, there's a really good quote. Um, I'm trying to remember how it goes. It's like, it's not that all paths lead to God, but um, God will meet you on any path you're on, you know? Yeah. There's something very similar along those lines in the shack. Yeah. Um, a lot of paths don't lead to anywhere, but God will meet you on whatever path you're on. That's right. I think that's yeah. a little more accurate to say, like, regardless of the path you're on, uh, it's not the path that will lead you to God. It's that um, God will be with you wherever you're at, um, you know, which goes along with like the idea, like Paul, like David saying, where can I go? You know, whether I descend even to the depths of Hades, you're there with me. So there's really nowhere you can go. There's no path that could take you anywhere that God wasn't, um, in, in a sense. 
Yeah, it's always blown me away how quick we are to believe that there's somewhere we can go and be separated from God for all eternity if God, I mean, I've, I've preached for 20 years, God's omnipresent. So how does that work? Yes. Yeah, it kind of flies in the face of, like, we don't think through all of our beliefs sometimes. Yeah, and that's one of those things where this idea that um, there is some special place. And now there are some, you know, infernalists, those that embrace eternal torment, um, they do believe that God has created a special place outside of his presence somehow um which is again you have to believe that because otherwise it challenges what you do the the rest of our belief systems right um it's also there's also a a belief a christian belief system that's supported by many scriptures it says you know that um that there is no life outside of christ right um if you have if you have christ you have life if you don't have christ you don't have life and this idea that, so in other words, it challenges the notion that all human souls are by nature eternal. In other words, the human soul by itself is not eternal. It's the human soul, the whole human soul is only sustained by the, under, underpinned by the life of Christ. And because Christ is life and we are in Christ, that's why we have life. And so uh, if that is true, then to believe eternal torment, the doctrine of eternal torment, you have to believe that God is sustaining the life of that tormented soul um, so that it won't be consumed and perish in the flames, uh, which is a, sort of a cruel, it's sort of like God keeps giving you, you know, keeping you alive, gives you this IV uh, to keep you alive while on the other side, he's burning you and you know, with hot sticks. Uh, it was right. really disgusting. Yeah. That, that's not a very good view of God. Yeah. Um, all right, so I want to start off by asking you a question that I get a lot. So please do not hear any disrespect in this. I'm okay. merely repeating what has been said to me. Sure. All right. Keith, you started off as such a good Christian church going boy. You were on church staff and even a leader, you personally, with the highly influential vineyard music. I mean, you were like a, a thriving part of the institutional church, what happened to you? How did you go down this road towards patristic universalism? Right. Well, it's a, it's a, yeah. Let to specifically address the, the, um, my views of the afterlife, because it's a bigger answer for the whole thing. You know, there were other, there were certain factors that led me sort of to begin questioning my faith. Um, I mean, for me, for me, the foundational thing was, recognizing that the gospel wasn't about saying a prayer so I can go to heaven when I die. That was the first thread that pulled and then it led me down the, this path. But um, specifically, um, specifically the view of eternal torment, I did believe that. I mean, I, that's the only option I was ever given. And this is kind of the problem I, I, as I see it. You know, um, like nine years old, became a Christian uh, at this, you know, the Lighthouse Free Will Baptist Church. And uh, heard the gospel. Well, I was told a version of the gospel that I believed. And, um, and it's the only version you're ever given. And so, you know, I, of course I believed eternal torment. That's the only thing I was ever told was acceptable or believable. Right. Um, so anyway, I believed that and preached that and taught that for many years. Um, and then what, what caused me to start doubting that, um, um, I have a friend, his name is Steve Gregg. But before he was my friend, I just listened to him. He had a, he has a radio program, uh, which you can actually listen to online. It's called the narrow path. Uh, I think it's the narrow path.org or maybe it's, maybe it's.com, but it's the put in the word, the, the narrow path. Um, anyway, Steve Gregg has a radio program that's syndicated. And, um, I used to listen to him online when I was at work and just killing time. Uh, you know, when I was working on stuff and listened to him on my headphones and um, it's a Bible, kind of a Bible answer man. People call him with Bible questions. And so he was the first person that I ever heard, you know, whoever told me that, oh, by the way, the Christian church has always had three views of hell historically. And, and those were annihilation, eternal torment, and universal reconciliation. And by the way, the majority view for the first 400 years was universal reconciliation and so when he said that by the way this is someone who is i really respect him he knows the bible way better than i do probably better than anyone i know um 
So when he just kind of gave me that information, it really blew my mind. It was suddenly all of a sudden there were there was more than one possibility. And once I realized, oh, there's more than one possibility, um, I just started looking into it. And um, once I started then kind of going back to the scripture and studying those other two views, because I was very familiar with the eternal torment view, um, what I recognized was that, well, initially what I did was I became an annihilationist. Um, so I kind of, I've gone, I've gone the gamut. Uh, I went from an eternal, believing in eternal torment. I shifted my view probably like four or five years ago. Uh, I became an, uh, an annihilationist because to me at that time, the verses that I could see in scripture seemed to be supporting more of an idea of annihilation than eternal torment. In fact, what I found was all those verses that I thought were about eternal torment were not at all about eternal torment. Uh, that is not what Jesus was talking about at all. Um, there's nothing about it in the Old Testament. So um, that, that was my first shift. And then after probably about another year or so, um, I eventually embraced universal reconciliation. And, and the, the, the thing that kind of swung me over to universal, to even just entertain universalism or universal reconciliation um, was Brad Jerzak's book, Her Gates Shall Not, Will Never Be Shut. And uh, that, that, that book, for the first time, gave me the hope that God might actually be even better than I thought he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you raised an interesting point. You started talking about the gospel and how it, uh, a re-understanding of the gospel, a shift in your understanding of the gospel, uh, really changed your life pretty dramatically, not just on this issue, but really all of your faith and your spirituality. Um, I think so much of my toxic doctrine that I picked up over the years was rooted in a misunderstanding of the word salvation. Yeah. What is salvation in your understanding? Is it about going to heaven when we die, or does that word mean something else to you now? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, because you're right. That that the question of salvation pretty pretty early, pretty quickly in in the deconstruction of the, the doctrine of hell, I think you're going to be faced with having to redefine that term. Uh, and so I think it's complicated because there's just, I have years and years and years of indoctrination of, of the word salvation and scriptures that I've been told to understand that are about being, getting saved, meaning going to heaven when you die. Mm -hmm. um, but having rethought all of that and gone, and, and just honestly going back and rereading some of these scriptures again, um, what I'm convinced of is that there's sort of two things. Um, and I think most of the time in the New Testament, when Jesus or even Paul talk about salvation or being saved, they are, they are referring to an event that is coming in their near future, which was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It was being saved from that ultimate, if you want to call it judgment or whatever, but there was some huge event that was going to happen. And the gospel that he was preaching was a gospel that was going to help them change their perspective of, of who God was and what God was like and what it meant to follow God and to be a follower of Christ. And that that shift in perspective would lead you to escape and avoid the destruction that was coming, this great destruction that was coming upon uh, Jerusalem. So I'm convinced a lot of time, a lot of those verses when I go back and reread them now, I think it's really just talking about that. Uh, it's a very practical, you know, basically like the bridge is out, stop, turn around. Or the, like, you know, if I, if I went into, um, if I went into the World Trade, Trade Center on September the 10th, um, I would tell people, get out of this building. It's all, it's going to collapse. You know what I mean? Like, don't come back to work tomorrow. And if you do, you, if you, if you listen to my words, you'll be saved. I think it's that very much of a practical, uh, practical thing. I th now there are, I think there are some verses that may be speaking more about salvation in, in the sense of being saved from our sins, um, which is not about going to heaven when we die. I think it's about experiencing true freedom from the systems and mechanisms and ways of thinking and being that prevent us from living a, a life of freedom in Christ. And that 
is that's another way of thinking of salvation. It's just being set free um, from these uh, this sinful way of living and thinking that that sort of keep us in bondage. Um, I think uh, when I threw out the question, uh, threw out the fact that we were going to have this conversation to the two Facebook groups, uh, the most common questions were related to justice. Um, what happens mm. to justice if everybody uh, goes to heaven in the end or everybody's with God in the end or however you want to phrase that? Uh, let's go specifically through. I think there's three questions. Sure. Here. Um, Arthur Freymeyer asked, uh, said, you can't believe in universalism and hold the traditional view of hell. How do you handle the idea of justice if there is no hell? Now, I want to go ahead and read the others because they're very similar. Sure. Um, Phil McCarthy has a similar question. Even uh, many of the church fathers who you referred to earlier, who thought all would ultimately be saved, believe there had to be some kind of painful or punitive transition. Others frame the process of entering the presence of our awesome God of love as itself a purifying, maybe painful experience. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think of this stuff. Are we simply incapable in our humanity of comprehending the width and depth of the love and grace of God? And then finally, Graham MacArthur asks, can a doctrine of justice or judgment be compatible with universalism? So three great questions on this subject of how does justice fit in to universalism? Yeah, and that is a very, those are very, very common reactions. And probably that's probably one of the top two responses I usually get. It's either that or why did Jesus have to die? Um, Which maybe we'll get to that in a minute. So, but the the justice question is, is very interesting. And I think what it does, the question itself, I think, puts a finger on and shines a light on our limited human understanding of justice. So um, I think it was Brad Jerzak. I don't know if he, if he invented this or if he was quoting somebody else, but I heard it from him. And he pointed out that, you know, we have to admit, we should admit to ourselves that our idea of justice is really no different from revenge. Mm. And I think you should, let's just sit with that for a second. Our idea of justice is pretty much revenge. You you did something horrible to me or someone I I care about. And therefore, um, the only thing that's going to make that right is for you to experience an equal amount, at least, maybe even a little more, uh, of pain and suffering as well. And then that will sort of equalize. And that's justice. But essentially, that's revenge, right? You you made me hurt. I'm going to make you hurt a little more. Um, But that is not God's idea of justice, that there is... There is the retributive justice idea, but there's also the restorative justice. Now, again, this is because within us, there is still something in us that needs to be redeemed when we consider what, what God's justice truly is. So as an example, well, so sometimes what I'll do when, when someone responds the way some of these, uh, these questions you know, have come, come up to us, about justice, about, you know, what doesn't, shouldn't there be some amount of suffering and pain? Um, I, I, sometimes I'll throw it back to the person who says that and I'll say, well, how much pain are you hoping that God is going to put you through after you die? I mean, are you really, what you're saying is what you're really hoping is that when you die, God says, okay, before anything else, I need you to go into this box over here and I'm going to, I'm going to make sure you experience some really intense pain for about 200 years and then I'll let you out and then we can enjoy heaven together. Is that, that's, that's what you're saying. And then of course they go, Oh no, 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 no. My sins are covered under the blood of Christ. Oh, so you get to just not pay for your sins. You get to not suffer the pain because why? Because Christ covered. Okay, good. And and you're okay with you. I don't mean me. I mean, those other people. Ah, see mercy is awesome. We all love mercy when it's on you. Of course, oh, mercy is so good. But when I see someone else receiving mercy who did something really bad, then I'm not okay with that. I'm like, oh, no, 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 that person should suffer. Well, how come you get, it's okay with you, but not with them, right? So that in itself, see, is revealing something in ourselves. So so here's, and I, I tried to, I, I've actually talked to my mom and I were talking about this about a month or so ago, um, this very thing. Um, you know, someone does something really, really horrible you know, how could you enjoy heaven? 
when you know that that maybe your abuser is there, they, they, you look across the crowd in heaven and there's the guy that abused you as a child, or here's the person that the drunk driver that killed your son or whatever, right? Let's make it really personal, something really painful in, for you personally. But here's what we need to understand. Not only will that person who did this horrible thing be brought back to a place of original goodness, the way they were when they were like two years old and they were just a little child. Like if you could find that person, take that person who did this horrible thing and you could go back through time and see their life and there would be a point in their life when they were a one-year-old, two years old, they were just a little kid and they were laughing and happy and playing with kittens and loving their mom and playing with their, mom, their, their, their brother and sister. And you would just see this beautiful, innocent person, the way you would see your own child if your child grew up and did some horrible thing, right? When you look at your own child, you don't see that horrible person that, that they did this horrible thing. You will always know them as this beautiful, innocent person who they were in the beginning. And so the goodness of God, the love of God, the redemption of God, the transformational process of us being made in the image of Christ, when we all go through that, we will then be brought back to a place of this original innocence and goodness and, and um this original place we were before we, these other things happened to us. And then we did other things to other people. Not only will that person be fully redeemed in that way, you will also be fully redeemed in such a way that when you see that person across the, the crowd, your heart will rejoice that the goodness of God is so good. It's good. Not only for you, it's good for them too. And look, Oh my goodness. They are transformed. They are healed. They are set free from all the things that twisted them into the people that they were when they did those horrible things. And you don't any, you know, you no longer require or need or desire that person to suffer uh, as a result. You are, you rejoice that they are set free from that and healed from that and made brand new from that. And so are you. So the, the process of being made brand new happens not only to that person that did the horrible thing, it actually happens to you and me. So I don't require, <laughs> you know, that like, I don't require this um, torment of that person. Uh, I, re- I truly rejoice in the goodness and the mercy of God for myself and as much for uh, uh, the other person as I would for myself. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to consider. And I want to say to those who are watching or listening today, if you have experienced some sort of abuse, um, it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling. I know that right now hearing these words from Keith, and I'm sure you've heard it before from others, it can be very painful to think about a day when you no longer have that animosity and that pain. But I think that when we, when we talk about justice, we're doing it from an entirely human perspective. And, and there is a different kind of justice in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, justice looks like mercy. Yes. And those of us who are hurting, go ahead say that again. No, no, it's it's restorative justice, and right. we truly think about what does it mean to restore, mm. right? It's to make new, right? Again, yeah. and so yeah, thank you for saying. Go ahead, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but no, no, yeah, I was just going to fo- follow up yeah. on your point. Yeah, yeah, that yes, that person and the, the the example we always hear about Keith is Hitler, right? Of course, I, I've I've literally heard people say, <laughs> "I don't want to be in heaven if Hitler is there." Yep. I don't want to spend eternity with somebody who's done those sort of things. But that is thinking about justice from entirely human perspective. Again, yes, I have no trouble seeing myself as God's child. And God knows the damage that was done to me and knows why I've done all the terrible things that I've done. And there are many. But God looks at Hitler that same way. That's right. Who would be capable of doing the things that Hitler did, if there were not was not an unspeakable thing that happened to them somewhere along the way, Adolf Hitler was not born no. wanting to burn millions of Jews uh, in incinerators. No, but the world somehow the systems of this world somehow did that to him, and God sees little Adolf before all of that happened. Yes. And wants to restore him back to that. Now, all of those who suffered are completely justified 
and sure. looking at that and saying, no, what he did was despicable and unforgivable. But again, they're looking from a human perspective. Right. And so here, here's the point, too, on that point as well. Not only, not only would the people who suffered under Hitler say what he did was despicable and horrible and wrong, so will Adolf Hitler. Yeah. He will be brought to a place um, where he will finally fully be able to see and comprehend and understand how much monumental pain and suffering he brought on other people who are his brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God, who are loved just as much as he is loved, and it will break him in half. And it will, you know what I mean? It will, he will be the first person to say, I hate what I did. And what I did was the worst thing ever. And he will be broken. In other words, in other words the, the Adolf Hitler who did those things, in a way, let's say it this way, he won't be in heaven because he won't be the same Adolf Hitler. He will be transformed. He will not be that person who still believes those things, still wants those things, somehow wants to justify what he did and, ex- and explain it away. Oh, no. <laughs> he, will com- he will be completely broken and, and, and burdened. And this is, again, part of the, if you want to, this is kind of touching a little bit on uh, the question as well, the part about how well, I think one of the questions says, you know, the early church fathers believe that this process would be painful in some way. Do you think it would be painful to have done the horrible things that Adolf Hitler had done. Imagine you're that guy. Imagine you're Adolf Hitler. Somehow you you had done those kinds of horrific things to other people and you suddenly could see it and understand it and have empathy for the people that you caused suffering to and you felt the weight of that much pain and suffering that you had caused other people. Wouldn't that be painful to you? Wouldn't that hurt wouldn't you, oh my gosh, when I, you just want to like, I want to die. I want to end my life. I, I don't deserve to live. You would, there would be this incredible, you know, painful experience to be face to face with, yes, the horrible, horrible things you've done. That, yeah, that'll be painful. But the purpose of the pain isn't simply to make you feel pain. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering. It's this process that will be painful but the end goal of it is to restore you. It's this restorative justice. Um, and that same restoration will happen not only to the oppressor, but to the oppressed as well. So that when they finally meet in heaven, um, they will, they'll, they'll, bo- both of them will be weeping and both of them will be embracing one another. And they'll, they will be, I'm sorry, and I love you, and I forgive you, and restoration. And again, this is something that's only possible because of this incredible uh, mercy uh, of, of Christ. Yeah, I remember hearing Brad Jerzak talk about Hitler, Hitler specifically uh, and what he might experience in the afterlife. And I mean, I cannot imagine Hitler in his fully restored right mind confronted with his deeds and maybe even seeing people he had done those things yes. to. Yes. How anguishing that would be. Uh, but that's not God torturing him. No. That's not God poking him with a stick. That's no. that's love doing its work of restoration. And as the divine loves the literal hell out of us, <laughs> all of our hatred and all of our animosity and all of our bias and our racism and our prejudice, all of those things that we've held on to our whole lives are loved out of us. And we release those. I can just imagine the anguish that they must be experiencing. Yeah. And I believe that would feel like burning, you know, the, the yeah. white hot love of God, burning those impurities out of our existence. Yeah. And, and we have to listen, we have to understand when we talk about this fire and the burning, these are metaphors. There is not a literal lake of fire that people are going to go through. This is, it's a, it's a figurative way, an expressive way of describing um, this process of, again, not destruction and not torture for the sake of torture, but going through it's again, what is the metaphor that Paul uses? It's this, uh, it's this um, crucible that is in this intense heat, this passing through the fire that reveals, that burns away the impurities and reveals the gold and silver and precious stones. And, but then he says, even if 
it's all burned up and there's no gold, there's no silver, there are no precious stones. That would be Adolf Hitler at least, right? He says, and yet they will still be saved even as those who pass through the fire. So we all go through this process. Uh, it will be painful. It will not be, it will not be pleasant. But again, let me, this, to me, this, uh, this language harkens back to a very, to me, a very instructive passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, which many of us know this passage, but we don't apply it in this context, but I think we should. And it says this, um, Hebrews 12, um, 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and, and everyone undergoes discipline. Okay, right there we can just do the math. Uh, what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, that means everyone undergoes discipline. That means everyone is a son. Then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live, not die, live. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Now here's the key, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And right there is a clue into the mind and the heart of God that the Father God who loves us and treats us all as sons, because we all endure this, we are all treated as sons and daughters, that he does this, why? For our good, so that we may share in his holiness. That is his end game. That's his ultimate goal. Not to, God is not a, and this is what we have to decide when it comes to these three views of hell. Um, we have to decide the nature and character of God. Is God a destroyer? Is God a torturer? Or is God a father who disciplines us for our good so that uh, we may share in his holiness? I think of those three, those are our three choices. I really, I really believe that. I don't think you can get around that. All right. So I know that many people, when they talk, hear talk about universalism, they go back to, well, what about Jesus? Eric Howell asked a great question on the Messy Conversations group. What about the last part of John 3.16? Don't we have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved? Oh, that's a great one. I'm, I'm going to flip over to that verse real quick. Um, so yeah, let's look at that. Um, it's really a fascinating verse. In fact, in many ways, I think the whole passage in chapter three of John is a very universalist passage. For God so loved the world, that's everyone, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Um, now he gets to this, I think I'm assuming that he's meaning this, this next part. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Uh, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Which, by the way, I got to say that those two verses right there are a direct uh, poke a little bit at Nicodemus who came to him in the dark, in the night, mm -hmm. and did not come to Jesus during the daytime. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been through God. So again, I, I think we have to understand too, like some of what's going on there and the nuance of it. But let me just back it up. Um, again, I think in some sense, some of this save salvation, those who will be saved that, that Jesus is talking about, again, he's speaking to his people. He sent as a prophet to the nation of Israel. Um, they are on a path that within about 40 years time, and, and Jesus knows this. He is there to warn them about it. If you do not stop, metanoia, repent, think different, turn around and do the opposite of what you're doing right now. Because if you do not, you are headed towards annihilation. You are headed towards a genocide. The Roman army is going to surround this city. It's going to destroy the temple. Millions of people are going to die. And it's going to be the end of the Jewish age. No more temple, no more priesthood, no more sacrifice. 
we're talking game over for you guys. So he's there to warn them, guys, listen to me. Stop trying to overthrow the Romans with violence and force. Do Listen to them. Again, he gives them the Sermon on the Mount, right? Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. You know, if they compel you to walk a mile, who did that? The Roman soldiers walked two miles. Mm-hmm. Why? What is he doing? He's trying to give them another way of opposing the Roman occupation in a way that will not lead them to be annihilated. And we have to understand this is always a part of what Jesus is trying to desperately communicate to the, to the people that he's speaking to uh, in, as part of his ministry. We have spiritualized a lot of this to be, oh, he's talking about if you want to go to heaven when you die, then you have to do that. And so I think we have to recognize, well, a lot of what he's saying to the Jewish people at the time is to warn them about, to, he wants them to avoid this very real destruction that's coming upon them. Um, and so, again, I, when I read John 3.16, I see that God loves the whole world, that that's why he sent his son, so that they would not perish, because he doesn't want them to die. That's not his heart. He wants them to live. Um, and he did not send the son to condemn, but to save us. And so this idea, um, and I, I don't know that this, this isn't necessarily his, his, in his question, but I, but I hear this a lot in the context of universalism, that if, that if everyone is going to make it, then why did Jesus have to die? Mm-hmm. And I think the, um, the problem even with that question is, I'm not saying that, that anyone's going to be saved without Christ. I mean, in other words, Christ dying is how we're saved. So yes, I'm I'm affirming that Christ's death meant something, said something, did something, sets us free. And that because of that, not just a few people get saved. That's how all of us get saved. So in other words, the the death of Christ on the cross is still necessary. It's not unnecessary. Um, It's still in Christ that these things are true. Uh, it's just that it's, I'm, I'm suggesting, uh, as the early church father suggested, that Christ sets us free from sin. That as John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Paul says, God was in Christ not counting our sins against us, but reconciling the world to himself. How did he do that? Well, one of the ways he did that was in Christ. He set us free. He forgave us. He, we are now reconciled. That's, that's the reality we, we live under now because of Christ. And so it definitely matters that Christ came. It definitely matters that Christ gave his life. Uh, all those things really do matter. And because of those things, according, I believe, to the scriptures in the New Testament, because Christ did those things, all are saved. All are set free. We are all reconciled to the Father because of Christ. All right, so I want to push you on that just a little bit, okay? Sure. Um, sure. One thing that I that I've struggled with a lot over the last year is the idea of did we get salvation or forgiveness or all the things that you just talked about at the cross? Was that when it happened, or was that the expression of a reality that had always been true? Great question. And again, this is I just I, my, my next book is on the uh, the atonement, so this is. Um, Oh, good. And this this is why I waited until <laughs> this. Is, that's why it's like the sixth book in the series, or whatever, seventh book in the series, because it's the atonement is such a, a mess. But a great question. And so my the first thing that popped in my mind when you asked that question is, you know, uh, is salvation something that that happened at a point in time, or was it always something that was true? Well, I think this is kind of what Paul means when he says that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a mystery in that, but I think there is a power to the idea. In other words, we tend to want to locate this, um, the, 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 the efficacy, if I can say that, the, something that sort of the catalyst happened 2,000 years ago at that moment in time. But I think what Paul is wanting to suggest is, well, yes, that's where we saw it. That's where in time it took place. But, it, but in the way, in the heart of God, it took place before he said, let there be light. Like there was no universe. There was no planet Earth. There was nothing. That's where Christ was crucified. 
Well, in what sense? Like, do you think God created a tree and made a cross and said, okay, Jesus, get up here. I'm going to, I mean, that's not what he meant. Uh, he means that Christ, the, the death, the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ and everything that it meant in the heart of God was done before he ever created anything. So in some, in some sense, um, I believe that, uh, as far as God was concerned, this reconciliation was always on the table. Like as far as God was concerned, he, he's the father, he loves us. We're his children, his posture and attitude towards us is the same as the, the, the father and the son of the, the story of the prodigal son, um, loving, welcoming, accepting, forgiving. That's always been who he is. Um, and so in that sense, uh, it's always been who God is. It's always been the heart of the father expressed in Christ. Um, Jesus came and um, allowed us to see it put on display in history that we can see it and say, that's, that's the expression of it. But that that's an expression of a reality that in God, as far as God is concerned, was always true. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what we're, what we're getting at or what we're hopeful of is that the forgiveness, the restoration was all there before any of the sin, before any of the brokenness, before any of the fall, yeah. but, you know, original blessing predates original sin. Yes. And, and I struggle with that terminology at this point, but uh, I think basically what Paul was saying with the whole Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world was it was a settled issue in the heart of God before we ever existed that God would do whatever it took to yeah. bring the family together in the yes. end. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And then again, I don't want us to get us off too, too, too much off track um, on the topic, but it does, there is overlap. Yeah. Um, you know, the idea of the cross. I mean, I think <clears throat> for me, what's really helped me as I've looked at this or tried to make sense of this whole thing is that understanding that it's not only about the cross. Um, I believe it's, if we want to, if we want to locate it in sort of the historical story of Jesus, uh, I think it begins in the incarnation. And I think actually that's where Paul wants to be, to, for it to begin as well. In other words, um, it was a huge sacrifice, if you want to use that word, sacrifice. What greater sacrifice is there than for Jesus, uh, who experienced equality with God, to lay that aside and take on mortality? The fact that, that God, who is immortal, took on a mortal body capable of experiencing pain and to suffer, to experience hunger and death. The, the, the act of dying was, was, a, was a foregone conclusion. The minute he took on human form and human flesh and mortality, that's a sacrifice. That's a huge sacrifice. And why did he do that? Because he loves us. And, and to express the love of God to humanity. So it begins in the incarnation. The sacrifice, if you want to talk about it, that's where it begins is in the incarnation. Um, then yes, you know, we see his life and we see his message and we see the crucifixion. And then we, it doesn't end there. It, it, it's, it, you know, one of the most radical things is the resurrection. And the, what, what is the resurrection saying about this, this whole story? So it's all of it wrapped up together. Uh, it's not only the cross. And in fact, I've, I've said this and I've gotten in trouble for it, but I, I do think it's true. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, believe it or not. Um, I, I kind of think like, the, the fact that the method that Jesus died was a cross, specifically, um, is irrelevant. I, I think um, that, that because of the incarnation, his death was going to happen no matter how it happened. And when, when Christ um, you know, died and entered into the depths of hell, he transformed death and resur the resurrection power of Christ um, transformed the realm of Hades and death, the, the, the reality of death, and turned it inside out and created uh, this new new creation, a new life that when he is raised, we're all raised with him, right? There's, a, there's this really crazy mystical thing going on there. Um, so, I mean, his death is significant. For us, we, we see it as a cross and there's so much going on there with a the cross. Um, but again, I think it's more about what happened in the incarnation the the um, 
the implications of that incarnation, then the death and the resurrection, like all those things are working together to create this new creation and this new possibility. But I'm, I'm sorry, I'm taking this into another direction. No, no, no. I appreciate that. I, I love uh, everything you've got to share on the subject. Hey, Kenton Self asks, does universalism imply irresistible grace? I know earlier this week, uh, our mutual friend, Dr. Thomas J. Ord, released a really thought-provoking article on this subject. Um, I'll try to link to it in the show notes. Keith, are you saying that everyone will eventually cooperate with God? Yeah, I think this idea of uh, free will, this, all, this is the other thing that, that pops up a lot in this conversation. Like, um, people will say, well, I, don't, I can't accept universal reconciliation because... It's sort of like what you're suggesting is that um, people don't have the option to resist God's love, right? And so, in fact, I had, a, I had an interview with Greg Boyd, and that was Greg's exact thing. I just, I, I hear what you're saying, Keith. I love what you're saying. It sounds so good. He goes, but I just can't go there because, you know, it just feels like God wouldn't force anybody. And I'm like, well, gosh, why do we assume that people have to be forced? I mean, to me, it's like, this is my analogy. If you, Jason, let's say you were, you went hiking and you end up in the desert somewhere and you had, you ran out of water, you ran out of food, you were, you know, like, uh, you know, dying for water. You've been out there for like a week and you could barely walk and, um, and you look up as you're stumbling, you know, in the desert and I'm sitting there with a, I'm sitting on a cooler, uh, an ice chest and I'm, and I, I'm, I'm popping open an ice cold thing of water. And I go, hey, Jason, you thirsty? Mm. At what point do I, do, I, do I take away your free will to offer you an ice cold drink of water after you've been in the desert for a, a week without any right. water? Yeah. To me, that's, what, that's kind of what, the, that's what I hear when I hear people saying, oh, but don't people have the power to resist? Well, in that, in that analogy, Jason, you have absolute freedom to resist. You could say, no, Keith, no, 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 no. I don't want that water. You, I'm, not, I'm not taking away your freedom to resist it, but is, I just think it's very unlikely that you would. Right. You know what Who I'm saying? So in other words, um, I think every human being, I think most Christians would agree with this, Every human being, whether they know it or not, whether they would use this language or not, deep, deep down inside, we have this God-shaped hole. And we are desperate for acceptance. We are desperate to be known. We are desperate to be loved completely and, and uh, you know, without any reserve for, for who we are. And we may not call that God. We may not think of that as God. We may totally reject any idea of God. But again, what we're rejecting is a is an incomplete picture of who God truly is if we reject God at all in this life. But when we die, we will see, for the first time, the veil's removed, we will see and be known as we are known. We will suddenly become face-to-face without any filters with absolute with a God who is absolute love, a Father. We will just be permeated, inundated with this incredible, intense awareness of how much we are intensely accepted and loved and welcomed and cherished and treasured by this amazing God. The thing that we have longed for in our deepest core of our being, our entire life in the, in the physical realm. And now suddenly we, there, there we are now face to face with that God. That's like this person desperate for water and suddenly there it is. And so is that person free to resist the the one thing they have desired their entire life at the deepest core of their being? Well, sure, I guess they could resist it. But my question is, why would they? And is it likely that they would use their freedom, which I'm going to say they absolutely have complete freedom. If they want to resist that, for whatever reason, they, they, they actually confront God for who God is, absolute love, absolute acceptance, completely knowing they are treasured and loved and valued and God just loves them so much. And they even would admit, I really want this so much. But then for for some reason, they go, you know what? Mm, No, I'm not ready. I think God would say, sure. Okay. Whenever you're ready. How long do you think he would resist that? Mm -hmm. A hundred years, 10,000 years. I I would give you two minutes. Uh, I just don't think anyone would truly do that and, and to assume that the human 
uh, again, with that, with all this other stuff removed, there's no need, there's no reason, there's no purpose to resisting that. Now, again, we might, we all might have to go through a pro process, as we've discussed, of dealing with our stuff and who we used to be and the things we've done and, and reconciling all of that. And I think all that's going to be done. And, 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 as, and as far as like how long that will take and does that even matter, right? I, just, I do believe at some point, yes, eventually all of us are going to freely choose. Um, as it says in the scriptures, one day every, every, uh, uh, every eye, what is it? Every, tumble, every knee will bow and every tongue will every gladly, confess. that word is in there, eximologio, every, every tongue will gladly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in their own free will, it'll just be an obvious yes. Um, mm. And I, and I quickly want to say something like about this too. David Bentley Hart is an excellent book uh, called That All Shall Be Saved. And he makes a really great point about this question in his book about how we define freedom. Um, and I think he makes a really interesting observation that we tend, and I think it's a mistake, and he would say it's a mistake, that we define freedom as the ability to just do whatever you want. That's freedom. I can do whatever I want. That's the definition of freedom. And I think he correctly points out that true freedom is to be set free from sin. It's the freedom to choose the good. Mm -hmm. Because again, in the Christian context, we talk all the time about, well, Paul even uses this analogy, right? The good that I want to do, I don't do. Um, and the evil that I don't want to do, I do it. Well, why, why is that true for you right now? Because you're not truly free. And you would be truly free if that wasn't the situation. You would be truly free if the good you wanted to do, you could do it. The, the, thing, the person you want to be, you could be that person. The horrible mistakes you make, the stupid things you say, the, the horrible things you do, the selfish ways you behave, you would be free from that. And you would be free to not make those stupid choices. And yeah. that's freedom. And so to be truly free is to be, have the freedom to choose the good because with, because otherwise we are not free to choose that we are, we're, we're in a place where we're not free to do the good we want to do or to not do the, the stupid things that we, that we don't want to do, but we end up doing them. Yeah. And, and we know that in this life, we, we only see in part, but yes. those glimpses that we get, of the love of God in this life are transformative, right? So yes. just imagine what it's going to be like when you were fully enveloped in the love of God, when love itself calls your name yes, and, and you're in your fully restored and healed mind and all yes. the trauma and pain of the past has melted away. Why in the world would we reject that? Right. I just don't, I, I just don't see it. I don't think it's, and, yeah. <laughs> and if God is love, and if God is good, and if love keeps no record of wrongs, then we're all going to be okay. Right, right. If it's God is not keeping, I, I remember in my Baptist days, I used to preach this, that God was keeping, uh, I didn't believe in the highlight reel, I believed in the low light reel, right? Oh, when yeah, we got there. Yeah. Yeah, he was going to show all on a big movie projector, he's going to show me all the worst moments of my life. But that is not who God is. No. God is love. And I'm yeah. so grateful. Yeah. If there right, is, if final there is two questions. Be, oh, I was going to say, if there is a highlight reel, I kind of believe this. I do think we're all going to sit around. If there, if there is going to be sort of home movie night <laughs> in heaven, I think what it'll be actually is watching the highlights. It'll be like, oh, look what my, look what my son did. Look what my daughter did. Can you believe it? Oh, check this out. Look what, oh my, isn't that amazing? Because there's going to be all these beautiful stories. I mean, let's just back it up. You're a parent. I'm a parent. Don't you love pulling out the photo albums and looking at pictures of your kids and then telling those stories? Oh, you know what this picture reminds me of? Let me tell you the time my daughter did this, my son did this. Oh, isn't it awesome? I'm so proud of him. I want to tell you these beautiful stories. That's who the father is. If he's going to do that, he's going to tell the good stuff. He's going to say, oh, everybody gather around, gather around. I'm going to, let me tell you what Jason did. Oh my gosh, it was this one time. Now, I know you're embarrassed, Jason, but I love you. I want everyone to know this beautiful thing it is. Isn't, isn't that beautiful? That's what it's going to be. That's who the father is. And he's a, he's a loving father who can't wait to tell those great stories 
uh, of all the beautiful things, all the the times we got it, the times we we got it right. And I think that's what we're getting. That's what we're going to get to experience. Yeah, I don't know where we picked up this idea that salvation or Christian living was all about figuring out all the answers. When yeah. I really believe that God, it's like you, it's just like you said, it's a it's a toddler learning how to walk. Yes. It's an infant growing and maturing. And oh, look, he's walking in love for the very first time right here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even awesome. if it's even if it's like you know, even if like if somebody's you know, like Paul says, you know, the the wood. They pass through the fire and there's no gold or silver. Like, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure there's got to be like, even who, no matter who you are, there's got to be a point in your life where even where if the story is just like God says, look right here, guys, he almost got it. Isn't that mm. is it right here? Oh, he's so close. He almost so understood close, yeah. it. He almost got it. Right. <laughs> we can still celebrate that. Like, man, you were so close right there. Oh, it would have been yeah. so great. <laughs> Not far from the kingdom. Right. Right. Exactly. All right. Philip Shivani is wondering what does happen in the age to come? Universalism sometimes gets its hype from what doesn't happen, but what does the Bible say will happen? And then Steve Sorowitz kind of asked a similar question in a roundabout way. Um, a similar question that he gets is, are you talking about the evil one world government? Where, you know, there's just this unification of all religions and this end times falling away takes place because everybody thinks they're all on the right path. Sure. Wow, that's that. I don't, uh, maybe we'll come back to that second question. That's sort of a different okay. thing. Um, well, so it's a good question to ask. What does happen? And I think that's a good. That's a really good question. And in, in the book that I wrote, um, so I wrote a book about sort of about the end times, uh, Jesus unexpected. That's the most my most recent book. And when I came to the end of that book, again, the whole point of the book was about you know that that. that that really, the, I would say the second coming of Christ is us. We are the body of Christ in the world today. And, and, and so anyway, that's, that's what I was talking about in that book. And so anyway, when I sent that book over to Brad Jerzak and he read it, he, he gave me a really great uh, suggestion. He goes, you know, Keith, give people some hope for what is going to happen. So it's kind of like this guy's question. And it forced me to take a step back and go, okay, yeah, that's true. I've taken away a lot of this story from people, but what is there to hope for? So I, I think that's what this question is getting at. And what I tried to do in the book, and I'm so glad that Brad asked me to do that because it kind of did, real. I made me realize I need to try to at least some way give us some understanding. Problem is, if you're going to say, well, what does the Bible tell us it's going to look like? It really doesn't. I mean, to be honest, uh, I don't think the scriptures tell us very much at all. You know, it, it, we get these veiled things about, you know, we will see, we will be known as we are known. We see through a veil, glass darkly, but one day face to face, uh, we will be like him. Uh, what will, but what we will be is not yet known. Like Paul admits, I don't know what we'll be like. We'll be like him. But beyond that, I don't know. You know, beyond, there's really no clear window and picture of, you know, it's, we're not going to be on a harp. We're not going to be uh, with angels and clouds and, you know, streets of gold and all that, like that, that, that kind of image of, of heaven. It, I don't think it's going to be that at all. Uh, but I do think what we're talking about is that we're going to experience the kingdom fully restored, fully realized uh, with Christ as a literal king. If you want to say that, I believe we will see Jesus. We will know him face to face. We will be transformed and all of humanity, all, all of creation will be transformed. This idea that Jesus says, behold, I make all things new, that he's committed to that. And that's been in motion for 2000 years now, and it's going to keep going. And one day, I believe all creation will be made new. Uh, we will all be fully transformed into this image of Christ, and we will live in a literal kingdom of Christ. Now, when and how and where, I don't really know. Um, I kind of feel like this is just where I'm at right now, if this makes sense to anybody. Um, there's sort of like sort of two parallel tracks to understanding what I'm describing. So on the one, on, in one sense, I think maybe his question is, how do you and I living here in this reality, the physical reality uh, on planet Earth in 2020, how do we get there? The thing I just described, the kingdom and Jesus and everything restored. And like, how is it slowly going to, this is going to turn into that. And because I do think in a way it will, I think at some point it is going to somehow, this physical reality will be part of that transformation and experience that transformation. 
Um, but it, there's also, in a way, though, at the same way, the same destination. The other way to get there is that in a few years from now, I will see Jesus face to face because I'm going to die. Physically, I will die. I will leave this body. And I believe I'm going to sort of leapfrog forward in time or at the end of time or however you want to say it. And I will wake up in that reality. I'll just be there. And so I will, that's where I will spend eternity. I will be in the presence of Christ. I will be in his kingdom. I will be, I will sort of leapfrog over time, uh, this whatever time it's going to take to physically get there. Uh, when I die, I'm going to end up there. Um, so one way or the other, all of creation is getting there, I believe. Um, most of us are going to leapfrog over. Now, the real thing that kind of bends your mind, maybe in a science fiction way, is that I believe that those of us who die and wake up in that reality, we will all get there at the same time. Mm. So, because it's because I think we're outside of time. I think that reality I'm talking about is sort of outside of time and space and time. So in a way, for example, my father died about four months ago. And I was talking to my mom about this. And I said, mom, here's the crazy thing. I think that when, when dad died, he woke up in the presence of Jesus and he looked over Jesus' shoulder, and you and I were standing there, and we just got there. We just got there too. We all just arrived, right? <laughs> and we're both we're all like, "What are you doing here? What are you doing here?" Like, oh, what? And I think, in a way, that's kind of what we're all going to experience. We all just we all just got there. It's all brand new, right? Um, so again, that's maybe a long roundabout way to answer the question, but I, I do believe that that is where all history is headed. Um, I think we're we're going to get there maybe in different ways. Uh, that that's a beautiful picture. It reminds me of the final episode of Lost, the TV yeah. show. Yes, um, they had all had these different journeys, but in the end, they all walked into whatever was next together, led by Christian Shepherd. Yes, <laughs> which, yes, which is an interesting character name. All right, Christian Shepherd, huh? Shepherd, Shepherd. I wonder who they could be talking about there. Um, all right. So uh, that's all the, the questions that we've got from folks in the groups today. I want to mention specifically, again, this book, Jesus Undefeated, a yeah. fantastic resource for everybody watching. The thing that I love about this, and, and Keith, you've mentioned a couple other really good books. David Bentley Hart, Brad Jerzak have both got books along these lines. Yeah. They are very, some, I'll be honest with you. I can't do David Bentley Hart. I love him. I love the, the heart behind what he has to say. I, I'm not smart enough to read David Bentley Hart. <laughs> Intellectually, he's beyond me. Um, Brad Jerzak is kind of a middle of the road. There's some academic, but there's also a lot of inspiration. So he'll hold my attention uh, better than David Bentley Hart will. But your book is the most readable, most user-friendly um, book on this subject that I've found. And so I'm grateful that you wrote it. Are there other resources other than what we've mentioned that you would point people to on the subject? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for asking. So there are, there's two books and I, and I, they're, they're referenced in my book. I, uh, when I was doing the research for the book, there's two books I'd recommend that I think would still be great, even though what I'm doing is kind of drawing from them and pulling information out of them to make it simple. That, that's, thank you for saying that, by the way. That's my goal is always to take complicated things and simplify them. Um, but so one of the books is, again, I mentioned Steve Gregg. Um, Steve Gregg was a guy that kind of set me on this path. So Steve has a really great book, uh, called, I think it's all you want to know about hell. And he does a wonderful job of taking a lot of time, way more time than I do in my book to, uh, explain all three different historical Christian views of hell and to kind of go through them. And, um, I think what he'll do, I think what he does in the book is like, he'll take eternal torment and explain it. And then he'll play the voice of, an annihilationist and how they would respond to that, to those verses uh, and, and a universalist and how they would respond to the same verses. And then he does the same thing for all three views. So it's much more in depth comparing and contrasting the three views. He doesn't pick a side, by the way, he doesn't say, he doesn't do what I do because in my book, I'm, I'm totally taking a side. Um, but he just says, look, I'm going to play devil's advocate for all three views. And so I think that's a great resource for somebody who doesn't know where they land um, and if they're really willing to dig super deep, uh, that book is excellent. Um, so all you want to know about hell by Steve Gregg. And if you want the historical uh, context, there's a book. Um, his last name is Hansen. I'm trying to remember. I think it's, is it Robert Hansen or Richard? I can't think of his name. 
his first name, but his last name is Hanson. And the book, it's from the 1800s. And a friend of mine gave me this book as a gift. Um, wow. It was because it's from the 1800s. And the title of the book is Christian Universalism, the Doctrine of the Early Church for the First 400 Years. Mm. That's the title of the book. And um, man, that is an eye-opening book. There's some great, great stuff uh, just going through historically and looking from an historical perspective of how the early Christians and what the early Christians believe about universalism and why. Um, great quotes from early church fathers. Uh, he has a great examples of like the catacombs, uh, which I use that in my illustration of my book um, because of, he just beautifully brought out some of the things in the catacombs that were discovered um, about universalism that I thought were really great. So those are the, those are two books I would recommend in addition to Brad Jerzak's book or David Bentley Hart's book if, if somebody's ready to, to dive in the deep end of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working my way there. All right, uh, Keith, thank you so much for this conversation. <clears throat> it's been a real gift to have this conversation with you. I know you're always working on something. Yeah. What's next for you? What do you, what can you tell folks about, about what you're doing right now? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, so yeah, what I'm doing right now, in fact, you're helping me with one of these things. Um, in January, I'm launching this thing called Ground Zero Renew. Um, and now specifically, it's to help pastors who are deconstructing their faith, because I, I realized as, as I've been doing some other online courses, Square One uh, and Two and Three, um, helping people process through deconstruction into reconstruction, I started realizing, man, there's a lot of pastors in here. And many of those pastors are saying, if my congregation knew that I was in this class <laughs> or that I was deconstructing these beliefs, I would lose my job. And so I started realizing, man, it's a lonely, lonely place to be. Deconstruction's hard enough, uh, but try to do that when you're a pastor and your job depends on it, your whole family and everything. Like it's, it's 10 times harder to deconstruct as a pastor. So to try to provide a community, a private community for pastors so they can talk to each other and help each other through this and to provide some resources. Um, I put together this thing called Ground Zero Renew. That starts January 16th. Uh, you're one of the people I talked to um, and several other people in there. So I, I, that's available now. You can register for it now. Um, but uh, yeah, that'll, that'll, and then I'm going to continue to do this going forward. So that's one thing I'm doing this coming year. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm doing a book. Uh, I just finished writing my book. Bruxy Cavey yesterday sent me the forward to the book. And wow. It's amazing. It's, I'm so blessed. Uh, so I'll be sending that to my publisher after I hang up with you. I'm going to send the, the final draft to my publisher and hopefully, please God, um, Jesus Unforsaken. It's about the atonement that will be available in March, I hope, uh, of next year. And um, that's probably main, the two main things. I'm continuing to do the Square One courses uh, and, uh, and, and other online kind of things like this, conversations like this uh, to help people. So. And blogging, of course, I'm still blogging on Patheos and all that. Well, I just want to say thank you for everything that you do. Uh, you are so generous with your time and you're so giving and you've got such a heart for people who are on the discovery journey uh, that you've been on. And I just see you popping up all over the place and folks know you that I have no idea how they know you, but you just, <laughs> you're so giving of your time that you just connected with people all over the place. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, I want to encourage you to check out Keith's Patreon page and support his work. He does this as a full-time occupation, and this labor is worthy of his hire. So uh, I just want to put that in your ear. We'll link to his Patreon page on the show notes for this episode. Friends, I will put a link to Keith's Square One program, the Ground Zero program you just meant, heard mentioned for pastors as well in the show notes, as well as links to his author, author page on Amazon, where you're going to be able to find all of his books. If you haven't already, I really urge you to check out Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment for more on the subject we discussed today. Keith, I love you, brother. Thank you so much for your time today. I love you too, Jason. This is great. Let's do it. Let's do it again sometime. Yes, absolutely. All right. Take care.